The summer of football. All you can ask for is another opportunity to play this game. It burns in me. On ESPN 1000. We don't know how many we got. I don't know how many I got. Make it count, boys. Mahomes. Flushed out again. Turning the corner. Fires downfield. Caught. Touchdown. Only Mahomes. You throw to score and run to win. Here's Saquon Barkley. And he's off to the races. The 30. The 20. Saquon for the summer of football at eight. Here's a quick throw to Miller. Good throw. Touchdown. Fake to Armstrong. Run. Book five. Book up to the end zone. Touchdown. Book. Burrow's got time. Launching for the end zone. Jumper. Touchdown. Terrence Marshall. The summer of football with Jonathan Hood. Yeah, that's my dog. On Chicago's home for sports. ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Continue with Summer of Football with Jonathan Hood right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Steve Palazzolo is from Pro Football Focus, the senior analyst, joins us as we talk Bears and NFL right here for the Summer of Football on ESPN 1000. Steve, Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And before we go into the football, as a, as a former ball player, baseball player yourself, a couple of things. One, I'm really disappointed in baseball that they are limiting the draft uh, for players. They shrunk the draft, uh, their past draft for 2020, and I wasn't happy about it. So what does that say for the future of minor league baseball? Because in some markets, Steve, I mean, that's it. They don't go to major league ballparks, and I just, I'm fearful about minor league baseball for the future. Yeah, I am too. I, I, it is It is sad. I mean, I was not only a minor league player, I was undrafted. I, I was passed over in the drafts 4,500 times. Um, oh, so I actually got a shot just because there are so many minor league teams and independent teams and worked my way up to, to AAA. And even though I never made it uh, to the big leagues and from a business standpoint, you know, it's not like Major League Baseball was slowing down because of people like me in the minors. It, you know, I got to go back and say, hey, I played eight years in the minors and made it to AAA and got to at least get close to my dream i think you might be losing some of that from a player standpoint and losing some of that from you know small town america as you said uh you know that's it's like the hottest ticket in town for a lot of minor league cities so i hope they can find a way but i think baseball's also been trying to get away from having six minor league teams as they've had and this is kind of maybe an excuse uh, to be able to do that one other baseball note, because you know what's been going on with COVID-19. Baseball's going through it with the Miami Marlins, where you have more than 13, maybe 15 players uh, that tested positive for COVID-19. If you're on one of those taxi squads, would you play if asked? Um, yeah, I would probably. I would probably do it. Because, again, I'm, the, I'm one of those fringe players that might not ever get an opportunity other than, you know, a situation like this. So. Um, yeah, I would give it a shot, but I think obviously the players need to be smart in and around the clubhouse. And um, the Marlins are one team, you know, out of 30. They've had, you know, these issues. It seems like the other teams so far doing a better job of taking care of themselves. Yeah, I just wanted to pick your brain on that because you've been in those clubhouses and it's it's a really, really odd time right now. We've been talking a lot about yeah. it uh, on the show. So, Steve, uh, when we t- take a look at your quarterback tiers on Pro Football Focus and we see Trubisky and Foles uh, at the bottom, you know that Bears fans are, are just up in arms because they here's what the Bears have been historically. There have always been at least a good enough defense to keep teams in, in games and the offense has always been subpar, at least for a long time. So, 
Well, is there a difference between Trubisky 2018 and Trubisky 2019? So I think this is the beauty of the PFF system. And again, Bears fans might disagree with this, but um, we sat there throughout the 2018 season and said, hey, look, Trubisky's got great stats. The team's winning, but his PFF grade is not good. And what does that mean? It just means we're just putting context to each throw. In the 2018 season, you know, there was there were jump balls that Allen Robinson was winning. There was five touchdowns on screen passes. The Bears were doing a great job of scheming it up and creating offense essentially despite their quarterback. And then what happened last year is our PFF grade on Trubisky was very much the same. Now, I know it didn't feel that way as a Bears fan because the rest of the offense wasn't as efficient. You weren't catching as many jump balls. There wasn't as much screen efficiency. I think they did taper down the offense just a little bit to, uh, you know, to simplify it for Trubisky. And um, it felt different offensively, but if you go throw by throw, he wasn't that much different than he was in 2018. So I think that is the... The tricky, the tricky part for the Bears, you may have thought, hey, Trubisky's taking this next step, he's in year two, and then all of a sudden it felt like he took a step back last year when the reality is he's been a bottom-tier quarterback you know, the last two years, and it just takes uh, a pristine situation around him to extract that type of production that he had in 2018. So that would be the concern, I think, as far as Trubisky's development and what we've seen over the last couple of years. Here's something weird for you, Steve. How about this? How about when before Nagy came to the Bears and he was and Trubisky was under John Fox? I'm not going to say that system is better because John Fox did not have an imagination offensively. He's just you know a solid football guy that's been around for a long time. But Trubisky's strength that I saw out of college was a guy that can run out of the pocket and be able to get first downs. Uh, I saw him in North Carolina a few times. The arm is there. But I, I just think that there's a lack of connection between the team and Trubisky. Is there anything from a number standpoint that you could see from maybe when he first started to, to now? Because I don't see the progress, and that's where Bears fans are really dismayed at that position. Yeah, so I think there, there were a lot. Of, I liked Trubisky coming out, and I know he only had the one year, but there was a lot of stuff to like about you know about him in North Carolina. I thought he hit you know those cover two shots really well, and. Um, he had the really nice comeback against Florida State. Like He did some really nice things at, at UNC, and you think, well, he's a one-year starter. He'll get better. Um, I think the, I don't know that there's a whole lot of change other than when you look at the warning signs, and not to compare him to Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Watson, but a lot of those guys, you know, they, ha- they all had similar college production, to be honest, but there was something about just the natural playmaking and feel that, say, Mahomes and Watson have versus Trubisky he I didn't like his blitz recognition coming out it was just he was just a tick slow I think as far as recognizing things uh you know within structure and then his intermediate level accuracy that 10 to 19 yard range that's kind of the money range in the NFL we always talk about the deep ball and but it's that 10 to 19 yard range that the best quarterbacks need to dominate and he just was off a little bit from an accuracy standpoint so I think it's more Trubisky's weaknesses coming out of college uh, we're just not the right weaknesses. Not doesn't have the natural playmaking ability. Doesn't have that intermediate accuracy and in that in some of the play recognition. And I think that's just caught up to him over time. Steve Palazzolo from Pro Football Focus, their senior analyst, with me, Jonathan Hood, for the summer of football on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Steve, uh, it, so 
uh, some Bears fans will say, okay, it's not it's not on Trubisky. I I have a good TV, so I know a lot of it is on Trubisky. But to say it's on the offensive line. Well, as you cited. This offensive line, at least you want to have one, at least one working part on the offensive line. Steve, I don't see anything that tells me on this offensive line that that any of these guys could be difference makers, whether it's in the running game or to be able to give Trubisky time. How, how do you assess the offensive line, even 2018 to what we saw last year? So 18 to 19, we saw a massive drop off. You know, I use the phrase a lot on on my podcast and in general when evaluating offensive lines. I say you have to at least be average, and if you're below average, you have to like creep back toward average. And if you are, if you have a middle tier offensive line, you can make do in the NFL. You know, you don't have to be you know the mid 90s Cowboys or anything like that. You just don't want to be a disaster. You don't want to rank in the bottom 10 because that's when. It, it becomes difficult to sustain offense. You're just under pressure too much. You just you have no room in the running game. And what happened last year with the Bears is they went from a top half of the league, maybe the quintessential perfect average offensive line. Like their tackle, Charles Leno and Bobby Massey have had just mid-tier average careers. I mean, that's just what they've been. And that's extremely valuable in the NFL. But last year they took a drop off. They, they, they dropped off. They were in the bottom half of the league. Uh, you know, Kyle Long wasn't the same player. He was only out there for a handful of snaps. Right guard has been an issue. And then James Daniels and Cody White here. I think they, once they had their little position switch, I mean, they, they look pretty good on the interior. So I think the pieces are there for them to at least be average. You figure out what happens at right guard. Rashad Coward, you know, he struggled. Maybe Jermaine Effetti comes in and uh, gets rejuvenated to kick inside. I think the pieces are there to at least be average. But it was very concerning last year that they went from pretty good to below average almost overnight with a lot of the same personnel. So so now, at the very least, you're saying at least reach up to average to, to yeah. help out that running game and help Trubisky if possible, right? Yeah, and that's all it is. Again, the to be honest, the, 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 the thing that dictates offense is the quarterback and the playmakers. They just need enough time or room to work. In a decent offensive line, they just need to be decent to give them enough time for the best playmakers to emerge and for the best quarterbacks to emerge. So you just need to be middle tier, I think, as far as offensive line goes. So when Matt Nagy first took the job with the Bears, and you got some some older media guys in there, they're, they're asking questions about the running game. Look, there's no, there's no Walter Payton, there's no you know Thomas Jones or whomever running the football anymore. But there's this has always been this blood and guts. You got to be able to run the football. But and Nagy kind of recoiled at that and says, this fancy football guys in the room? What do you mean for run the football? And I think that the uh, the point was being trying to be made is that in this league still, Steve, you have to be able to have some semblance of a running game. And I think that from Matt Nagy's standpoint, from Kansas City, threw the ball a lot, abandoned the run, or didn't feel confident in the running game, to the point where I'm wondering, is he confident in David Montgomery running the football? What did you see from Montgomery, and do you believe the Bears should run the football some more to try to help out Trubisky or Foles? Yeah, I would probably. I'm usually in the boat where you don't have to run the ball as much. So here's what I here's how I look at balance in the NFL. I think you need to be able to throw the ball short, throw it intermediate, throw it deep, and then run the ball. If the, to me that if those are the the four pieces of your offense. So a lot of people look at well, pass is half, you know, fifty percent, and run fifty percent. To me, the run game might be like twenty five percent. And I think the reason why I split it up that way is you just want to have answers for what the defense. Does you know if they sit back you can throw it short you can run it if they press you you can throw it deep you can get behind them right so 
it, to me, it's about having answers. I don't think you need to establish the run. I don't think you need to run the ball just because you're in the NFC North and it gets cold and windy a couple times a year. I don't believe in any of that stuff. However, the thing I saw from Montgomery last year, he was as good as it gets as far as running backs coming out in the last five years, just breaking tackles. He was outstanding at Iowa State. He, was a, a, he wasn't great as far as his reads. He doesn't have great burst or explosion, so he actually has to force uh, missed tackles. He's not going to run away from people. Um, and I think he, that was just lacking. You know, he just uh, he doesn't create before contact all that well, I would say. And then when you're behind an offensive line that's struggling, you know, you, you don't have much of a shot anyway. I think the run game does start with the offensive line, and it starts with the play callers. And the Chiefs have had good success because they spread to run, and they've had a passing game that you have to uh, that you have to worry about. So I think you pass to set up the run. Um, so if you can get the passing game going, it'll open up, open up the running game. And, and I know that that's counterintuitive to, uh, you know, NFC Central slash North football and Bears football, right. but I think that is the way to go. Um, I think Montgomery is a guy that can do it and do it well, but he, he de- definitely has to improve upon what we saw from him last year. The feeling of, of running the football exclusively is passe, clearly in the NFL. I mean, if anyone just turn on the game, you realize that's the case, but there there were questions about Montgomery and when whether or not there's another step in his game. So we're going to keep our eyes on that for sure in 2020. Um, yeah, wanna, it, go ahead. I was just going to say yeah, and and I think just just the rules the rules make it better to pass the ball. You know, pass interference, illegal contact. You know, like a five yard. Think about what a five yard run does for you as a fan. Where it's like, wow, nice five yard run. It was well blocked and all that stuff. That's the same gain as an illegal contact, which happens all the time as well, five yards. You know what I mean? So it's just it's easier to pass because of the rules and the way the NFL has made it. Would you see Nagy's um, play calling and the execution or lack thereof from the Bears offensively, Steve? Does, does Nagy's, what he wants to run, match the personnel that he's had with the Bears? You know, it, it did look cleaner, I think, in, in 2018. Um, it, it did look like – I always look at a passing offense and say, look, do you, have, do you have different style receivers? You know, they had Gabriel in there who could do some things. Anthony Miller uh, can work out of the slot, work outside. Allen Robinson can do it all. Um, so I think, you know, they, they felt like they had more of that personnel working uh, properly in 2018. And then Nagy was getting really creative. Let's throw four defensive players out there. Let's mix it up. And then – you know, so it was clicking. It was feeling good, and I think last year there was definitely something off um, where it was maybe forced a little bit. And part of it's, you know, maybe putting. It, I, I understand the need, to, the want to run the ball because you're like, man, there's too much on Trubisky's plate. But to be honest, if you have a quarterback in the bottom half of the league, you have to do everything to put him in position to succeed, which is usually passing on early downs, passing to set up the run. Like you can't just go run, run, and then try to converted on third and nine you know russell wilson can do that but you don't want trubisky doing that so you actually have to pass on early downs but when it doesn't work it feels really uncomfortable and i think that's what we saw last year steve palazzolo from pro football focus the senior analyst with jonathan hood on espn 1000 and the espn chicago app so when Foles comes over to the bears steve you know that there there's conversation about competition i personally think that trubisky is going to start and he has to fail in the job for Foles to be the starter at some point how do you see Foles versus trubisky is Foles better off the bench or as a starter yeah, Foles is one of my – he's just a fascinating quarterback because I always joke I need more data points on Foles. He's only had a few years as a starter. I, I don't know what he is just yet. 
And I think the, the thing that sums him up is he had a Super Bowl run in 2017, and you're like, wow, he must have been great that year. He actually wasn't that good up until the NFC Championship and then the Super Bowl, and then he was off the charts incredible. One of the best Super Bowls we've ever seen. Even you know Brady threw for 500 in that game and was great, but I mean Foles was better. You know, even though the stats weren't as good. Um, so his high end has been really good. He had that 2013 season with ridiculous stats, but that was very much driven by Chip Kelly and his scheme. So there's all these back and forth caveats I think with with Foles. I think he's capable of high end play, right? And I think that is that is valuable in the NFL. You know, Joe Flacco went on a run. Eli Manning has had high peaks. That's kind of how Nick Foles is. You know, he's willing to get you know make plays under pressure, and when you do that, sometimes those plays when you're getting hit. They work. Sometimes they don't, and that leads to a wide range of outcomes. That's Nick Foles. So if you're just saying, look, we need to make a Super Bowl run, I think Foles is your option because the high-end play, it might only hit 10% of the time or something, but it's there, and he can make that run for you, but it also could be ugly and disastrous. So it's tough because you want a quarterback you can rely upon, and I think Foles just has such a wide range of outcomes, and we've seen all of those throughout his career. He's been He's gone on great stretches, and he's been one of the worst starters in the league at other points in his career. Steve, when you did your quarterback tiers list, I'm just curious of um, if you're looking at a quarterback, you're looking to maybe see maybe another step from this quarterback where you have it in uh, have a tier two or tier three quarterback, but you believe the arrow's pointing up. Do you have a quarterback in mind for that that you think is going to take another step? So the, the one I want to see is Deshaun Watson. I think he's definitely the guy. I think Deshaun Watson, again, we talk about volatility and all that. There's some weeks you're like, man, that's, that's an MVP candidate. And then there's other weeks he's got he's the worst quarterback in the league. Um, and that has been his, his first couple of years. So uh, if the big game happens on primetime, you think, oh, Watson's awesome. But he's a Tier 2 quarterback for me right now. I think he has Tier 1 ability. He's been really good his first few years. There's another step to his game, though, I think, that he can take. And that's just cutting out some of the bad games and taking some of the easy stuff, not trying to play hero ball all the time. I think I think Watson definitely has that in him. Check out the NFL team preview series with the Chicago Bears. Steve wrote it on Pro Football Focus. And if someone went to PFF, what would they find, Steve? Uh, basically everything you want on NFL, college football, the NFL draft. So in fantasy, fantasy and, and gambling especially, we've put a lot of resource into that. So if you're trying to win whatever you're trying to win this year, PFF.com is the place for you. Steve, I'm glad you spent some time with us here in Chicago, and uh, I'm all the best. I'm, I'm lighting a candle for you because I know Bears fans are coming after you. They want you to <laughs> have positive grades, and they're not a positive team. So uh, it, it's we'll see it whether or not they can uh, be better than eight and eight for uh, this upcoming season. Well, I'm rooting for Bears fans as well. Always appreciate the interaction, and uh, you know it's good to have some football to talk about at least. Is under the hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Go under the hood with Jonathan Hood. Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Lou Henson, the all-time wins leader as men's basketball coach at Illinois. And New Mexico State, he passed away Saturday at his home in Champaign, Illinois, at the age of 88. The announcement came from his family earlier today. He was buried in a ceremony in Champaign, which was attended by family only. Only So all the best to Lou Henson's family in the passing of an all-time great Lou Henson, part of that uh, flying Illini team as a head coach. 
Stephen Bardo played on that team. Of course, Stephen uh, is an analyst for Fox Sports 1. He's got the Bardo's Breakdown podcast as well as the Players Club podcast. And he gave his reflections of his longtime coach in college, Lou Henson. Stephen Bardo on the passing of Lou Henson. What's going on, y'all? It's your man, Stephen Bardo, coming at you with another edition of the Players Club. I come to you with a heavy heart today. I got news a couple hours ago that my college coach, Lou Henson, passed away over the weekend. He was 88 years old. He lived a wonderful life of impact. Um, He touched a lot of people's lives. His voice got louder in my head and his lessons became stronger. The longer I got away from him and the more of an adult I became. I noticed myself using some of his sayings when I was talking to my sons as they were growing up. And Lou Henson left a tremendous legacy on the game of college basketball, in particular the University of Illinois basketball program. He was a he was a standard bearer. It's the best way I could say it. He introduced the Orange Crush, which is one of the best student um, student energy sections in the country. He was very instrumental in bringing the Rebounders, which is a group of uh, financial support people that wanted to support the the program. He was instrumental in growing that. He and his wonderful wife, Mary Henson. Lou was a, a, he was a forward thinking guy. Even though he was a little older when I, uh, you know, when I came to Illinois, he was towards the back end of his career. He still knew what time it was, even though he sounded like he was from Backwoods, Oklahoma. He knew exactly what time it was. Um, some of the lessons he would impart on us, hey, we're all creatures of habit. So when Lou would get mad, his voice would raise and then that twang would come out. And he said, you're only going to go as far as your habits will take you. We are all creatures of habit. And as an 18-year-old, I didn't quite understand what he was saying. But as a 28-year-old with two children, I knew exactly what he was saying. He, he would also talk. He'd say, hey, coaches, we need tough guys. Our guys aren't tough enough. And again, as a freshman, not having played a college game, I didn't quite understand what he was talking about. But when I played my first college game and saw how fast and strong those guys were, I knew exactly what he was saying. There, I'll share a story with you. We're flying as a team to Hawaii. I believe it's my junior or senior year. Uh, junior, sophomore year, I'm sorry. And so back then, and probably now, because I still see teams traveling to the airport, they wanted all of us to wear the same uh, travel sweatsuits. So we look like a bunch of damn kids. These six five to six, eight guys in the airport all wearing the same uh, sweatsuit. I just never understood that. But anyway, I love to read the USA Today newspaper. And if you remember, the USA Today newspapers and those little machines, you'd put the money in, you open up, it was on the honor system. You take one, you close it. Well, I put the money in and I took like four or five. Coach Henson saw me and he stopped me right on the spot because there was like four or five teammates that were gonna get the papers that I was grabbing out. He said, hey, Steven, put the proper money in there or put the newspapers back. 
I said, coach, they're just newspapers. He said, Steven, somebody's depending on that. He said, so either put the papers back in there or put the, the required money in there. And I was pissed. I was really not happy because I thought he was trying to embarrass me. But what he was doing was teaching a very, a very valuable life lesson, not only to me, to my teammates. And he did it for a reason in that fashion so that he could get that point across. I'll never forget how I felt in that day. But now as a working adult and having to support my family, I totally understand what Lou Henson was trying to impart. So it's with a heavy heart today that I share this with you. I got off the program a little bit for the Players Club, but I thought that Lou Henson deserved a tribute because he's a man of great integrity. He had a tremendous impact on 40 years, four decades of young men that played in his programs from New Mexico State, Hardin-Simmons, and the University of Illinois. And he left a legacy that is unmatched. So, so long, Coach Henson. We'll miss you. Rest in power, my man. Peace. The thoughts there from Stephen Bardo, who played for the Flying Illini back in 89. Dick Vitale tweeted earlier today, I was saddened to learn of the passing of Lou Henson. The 89 Flying Illini is one of the best teams in my 40-plus years around basketball. Uh, that did not win a championship, lost to Michigan in the Final Four. Uh, may he rest in peace, Lou Henson. So thoughts there from Dick Vitale and thoughts from Stephen Bardo from FS1 and the Bardo's Breakdown podcast. He's giving his memories of Lou Henson. Coming up, we will hear from Scoop Jackson as the NBA reconvenes tomorrow. Get his thoughts about... Uh, Zion Williamson of the New Orleans Pelicans and other issues. Back in his magazine days, how would he have covered Zion Williamson? We'll discuss that and more as the NBA comes back. And we talk about it right here on UTH. What do you got there? This is your car. My car? I said a 10-second car, not a 10-minute car. Pop the hood. Pop the hood? Pop the hood. Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Here we go. Glad that you're with me here for Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Let's go to ESPN.com and the author of the new book, The Game is Not a Game, The Power, Protest, and Politics of American Sports. It is Scoop Jackson and friend of the program with us here on ESPN 1000. Hello, Scoop. What's up, Hood? How you doing, man? Hanging in there. That's all we can yeah. do, right? That's all we can do. That's all we can do. Hang, hang in there and try to decipher, you know, what's, um, what's official and what's not official as far as information is concerned. <laughs> yeah, that's really true. That's really true. I, I want to ask you this. In your, in your days of, of covering sports, especially in your magazine days at Slam Magazine, I'm wondering how you back in the day would have covered Zion Williamson. I mean, we're looking at him now, but we're seeing Zion Williamson as we're looking at LeBron or any other seeming seemingly prodigy coming into the NBA, right? He's, he's so different than anything else that we've ever yeah. seen. Well, here's the deal. I think, it, well, there's two things that are going to play. One, it depends on what his relationship with the magazine was. Mm-hmm. And we had slam had an advantage with a lot of the younger individuals because, you know, they were, the magazine fit, to their specific needs as far as what they were interested in. 
we skewed a lot younger than a lot of the other uh, sports publications at the time. And because we were covering high school sports and high school players at the time. So a lot of the players, we, you know, by the time they got to league, we already had a relationship with them. You know, um, Zion probably would have been maybe by his junior year, a basketball diary with us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he would have had a relationship with the magazine. Uh, so we would have covered him in a way, you know, from a, from a journalist standpoint, we would have covered him in a way and tried to tell parts of his stories, parts of his story that everybody else seemed to be missing. Where people may have been concentrating on this, you know, be it the USA Today, the Sport News, Sports Illustrated, all the websites, they have been covering him one way. We would have tried to get into other stories and other angles of telling the story that were past that. So we weren't doing the same thing everybody else was doing. That's from a journalist standpoint. From a publisher standpoint, he would have been covered by the publisher side of things that what was going to make Slam the most amount of money. You know, it, it's very similar to the way we, you know, we covered Iverson, the way we covered, you know, Kobe, and the way we covered LeBron. You know, it's, it's those individuals on the cover of the magazine and stories about them generated interest. So, you know, when sales would be around 35, and that's, you know, magazine numbers, third sales around 35, which is the average sale, you know, they would give us 50s and 55s and 60s. So our coverage of Zion, you know, would have been one-way journalistically, but the publisher like, all right, we had two mediocre selling issues. You know, we put Luca on one issue, and we put, you know, Trey Young on the other issue, and they didn't move. All right, we got to get Zion on the cover because we need a 50. <laughs> yeah. right. So that's kind of would have dictated how – we covered Zion, but also a thing covering him that, that exists now that didn't exist back then is the outside coverage that he got building his brand and building him up. Uh, we may have skewed back on Zion because there's so much interest, especially with us at ESPN, you know, and we learned this in dealing with LeBron. We, we, we gravitate towards certain athletes so much that the public kind of gets tired of it. And from a separate entity standpoint, when you're not at ESPN, you know, you don't want to fall into the hype machine and have it backfire on you because he's getting so much attention elsewhere. So the reason why I asked the question, Scoop, is because I think we have surface knowledge on Zion Williamson because of the smile, because he busts out of his shoes. He puts yeah. college basketball on his on his back actually for a season, something that you don't get anymore where you have one player that's must-see. Right. And now with the, the Pelicans, you know that the NBA is trying to push Zion out there because clearly – Adam Silver could have just settled for 16 teams to on this restart, but he settled yeah. for 22. He wanted 22 because he wanted Zion in the spotlight. So that makes him pretty special for a non-playoff team to be part of this mix here. Well, keep in mind also, Hood, is that the one thing Adam's trying to do, and this is still a business he's trying to run, is, is, is much as he's trying to like bridge the gap and you know follow it on both ends where it is a business, but it is part of the social movement that we're dealing with, and he's still you know a, a commissioner that is straddling the side of, you know, working for the owners and working for the players at the same time with something that really hasn't been done in professional sports. Uh, he also has to keep in mind that not only now, but he has to somehow keep a great relationship with Pelicans' ownership moving down in the future. Mm -hmm. So the one thing he doesn't want to do now is like, okay, man, I can have 16 teams and like exclude New Orleans from this, but then have, you know, the ownership of New Orleans pissed at him for five years and Zion becomes that dude and now he's having to deal with a cantankerous relationship with ownership of the player that he needs to put out there. You know what I'm saying? So you have to think down the line. Like, look, it's good business to be in a very healthy relationship with the New Orleans Pelicans ownership group right now. So if that means, you know, at least giving them a chance to get in when they may not have a chance, fine. I'll take that hit right now. But down the line, that's going to be 
something that's not going to be a problem for me because of what I'm doing right now. So from a business standpoint, looking long-term and the power that Zion's going to have and he's still going to be in New Orleans, you know, I, I think, you know, Adam, knowing Adam the way I do, he thought that through too. <laughs> Scoop Jackson from ESPN.com with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. You mentioned the social piece, and I want to talk to you about that because I, I reflect back to um, – David Stern, the former commissioner, the late commissioner, and how Adam Silver is handling things. And I already see here in the, in the bubble, and you know this is going to happen, Black Lives Matter is on the floor, Black Lives Matter t-shirts are out there for players. It's no different than before COVID-19, but uh, it is accentuated even more so because yes. there's no fans, it's just a few media members and the players. And I saw that some of the uh, WNBA team, before the anthem was played, they walked yeah, off they, the floor. So, up, yeah. yeah, so I want to know how, how you think David Stern would handle this uh, in 2020 uh, versus how Adam Silver's handling it. Here's the thing I think we have avoided because David Stern is not only no longer here, uh, RIP, but also the fact that he's not running the league, he's not commissioner. We missed um, a battle between the positioning of David Stern and Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Stern was a very owner-friendly owner forward commissioner um the players seem to come secondary to who he honored as far as decisions he was making as a commissioner uh during his term it was owners first which is cool like i said you very rarely see somebody like adam silver where he kind of is balancing both usually it's one or the other and david seemed to be a very owner forward uh commissioner now with LeBron, in 2020, with LeBron having the power that he does have right now inside of the league, you know, and that's something that no commissioner is going to overlook because, you know, as much as the commissioner does have power, they have to respect the power that LeBron has as maybe being the most powerful person in the league, even above him. With Stern being an owner-forward um, commissioner and Michael Jordan still yielding the power that he does, and him being the only majority black owner in the NBA, if he had to fight LeBron and Michael on stuff like this, we would have seen a begrudging David Stern do things that he would have been battling behind closed, well, not doors now, behind closed phone calls, field phone calls or whatever, right. about right. owners not trying to do it, but him having, but Michael Jordan have more power, uh, not just as a Charlotte owner, but as one of the 30 owners, but also being Michael Jordan and having LeBron James on the side of how they want to speak his piece, depending on what side Michael fell on. And, you know, as Jordan remained quiet for the most part, uh, when it came to social movements, even though he was doing things on the back end from a monetary standpoint, Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to this, you know, especially knowing the decision he made, you know, with uh, Jordan and Nike and the money they decided to give up, he would have been a lot more on the side of making social statements. So he could have been the only owner speaking on his behalf. And I don't know if David Stern would have been able to not win, but publicly keep that fight hidden. You know, uh, mm-hmm. where all the other owners are like, hey, Dave, you know, we're with you. And he's looking out for them. But then he has one Michael Jordan that is like, no, nah, I'm not going for this. No, I'm not going for this. No, I'm not going for it. Even though, as Adam Silver, Adam Silver even said it in meetings that Michael's voice was one of the most respected voices in the room because He's on both sides. So when they were deciding to do this, Michael had a strong vote, and that's with Adam Silver. So, I, you know, if Stern was in office and him being owner-friendly, you know, owner-forward, 
it would have been really interesting to see what would have come out between he and Michael Jordan because that would have been a public fight that would have been tried to, that would have, you know, probably kept quiet. But depending on what side uh, Woj was on, <laughs> if David <laughs> Stern was on Woj's bad side, we yeah. would have found out everything. <laughs> we would have yeah. found out everything. Well, you know, that that's something that I would have liked to see. Um, yeah, I would have be, too. Be, be, because LeBron, is, if not, it's going to come out wrong, but it's, it's not like Michael was pushing uh, Stern the way LeBron is putting himself no, as a front-facing you know, activist, ball player yep. out there speaking on behalf of social media. And Stern's never had to deal with that. Stern's a guy that never. wanted to he wanted to airbrush, you know, Iverson. He wanted to have everybody yeah. in a dress code. It, it doesn't mean yep. that he was a bad commissioner, but he sided with the owners and wanted to have a different image. Hey, he pulled the NBA out of the, the dark armories, yeah. the smoke-filled armories, and, and put a different clientele in these uh, basketball arenas and, and expanded the league. I mean, he did a lot of great things, but during this time, when you have not the NBA, not just the NBA, but the WNBA also having their voice yeah. heard, it's it's just different. And this is why Silver is just its complete, you know, players commissioner, no beef, uh, labor peace. It's it's it is the tops of the league when it comes to that for commissioner player relationship. Exactly. And the thing that happened with David Stern, I think, is that you know, as great as he was as a commissioner, like anything else in any business setting or any business or franchise, or whatever, his way of doing things as successful as it was started to run its course because it came at the expense of a lot of things. Yes, he was able to generate money and global interest, but the players over the years, because of the way Michael Jordan was treated financially throughout his career, because of the way some of the, the you know, hell, just even the way he overrode the Chris Paul situation. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right. God. So, what I'm saying is that those things over a period of time start to resonate with the players, and they're like, hey, well, it looks good on the outside, but once you get past the surface, let's see what's going on underneath. And, Jonathan, you understand, especially being in Chicago, it's very similar to the way Daly ran Chicago. Mm-hmm. He made Chicago a global city, and it looked good to the outside. He even looked good to some of us because he made it one of the most important cities in America, and Everybody fell for that, right? Yes. But once he was no longer there and that surface was removed, you got to see all of what was going on underneath that was not good at all. So it's the same thing with David Stern. It's like, yeah, you're right. He pulled him into a situation and rose the NBA to a a, a league, an organization that is well-respected around the world. But the players, that the people that are in it, just like the school system that was in it, just like the parking situation, just like residents who live in certain neighborhoods that, that you know, are, are disenfranchised, you know, the players become that exact thing. It's like, hey, now can we lift this veil and y'all see what's really going on that he's no longer here? And with David Stern no longer being there, a lot of that veil started to get lifted, and Adam is going to make sure that, hey, I, you know, at the end of the day, I know what it looks like up under here because I was still with this guy. I just didn't make what they make decisions. So I'm going to do whatever I can to rectify some of this. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. You're listening to Under the Hood. Get the ESPN Chicago app for podcasts and the live stream from anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. Download in the app store today. This is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. ESPN.com, Scoop Jackson, in front of the program.
program with us here on ESPN 1000. Are you concerned at all about uh, the NBA players in this bubble? We've seen minuscule, if uh, hardly any positive tests regarding COVID-19. It is different, though, and it seems to be working unlike Major League Baseball. Yeah, I think I, I think we'll be fine. I think there may be one or two that may slip, but I think now that we get the seeding games going on, and it's business now. Um, I think everybody that needed to get whatever it was out of their system that was non, you know, family or health related, done. Um, I think there were some players that were still on the fence whether they wanted to come or not, and uh, they came anyway, but still weren't. You know, they're like, eh, I'll come, but I, you know. I'm not, I'm not going to act right until this thing gets for real. And I think starting tomorrow, it gets for real. Um, and for a lot of teams, especially, like you said, uh, let's, say, let's say there's eight teams. Or maybe let's say there's ten. Mm-hmm. There's ten teams that may kind of take the first six of the eight games, seeding games, not seriously because they're good and they're waiting for the playoffs to start. But for the most part, this is everybody's playoff right now. So they're going to be playing hard and coming out strong hard, and everybody's going to be focused. Um, so I think what we're seeing with the NBA is going to continue with the exception of maybe one or two players who may, you know, you know, who may have to get reeled in. But now we're going to see what leadership is all about. You know, it was interesting to see, like, Michael Porter Jr. make the comments that he made, and if Denver's really trying to make a run to get a ring right now and everybody has to be all in, it's, it's going to take more than, you know, Mike Malone and the ownership team to talk. It's going to take, like, that player. You know what I'm saying? It's going to take that, you know, that Paul Millsap type to be, hey, 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 look, dude, you know, this is serious. He not, he's not even talking about Corona being serious. We're in the ring, winning the ring is serious, so we all need to be mentally locked in. So if you think this thing is a big conspiracy theory, that's fine. Think that, but don't act like that. You know what I'm saying? Don't try to lead a bubble thinking this ain't this is this is about it. And I think that starts for most of the teams starting tomorrow. And with the window being so um, so short, if windows can be short, but if the windows being so yes. short on this, where we're really talking about a couple of months, as opposed to like baseball and uh, football, where you're talking like trying to play this whole thing out in inside of a bubble an entire season. You know, over five months as opposed to maybe three, and with it not being playoff mode, which is always different for professional athletes. I think the NBA and the NHL. I want them out there, but since we're talking about the NBA, I think the NBA should go fine. You know, I, I think it should be fine. Um, they got the test out of the way for the most part. You know, everybody kind of did what they needed to do because you didn't see any positive test, test come back, and I don't see anybody getting antsy trying to break protocol. Because, like I said, you only got eight games before the playoffs start. And once they get in the playoff mode, I think everything changes. Their minds, especially on the short run, everybody's mind is going to be so locked in. Well, everybody except Lou Williams because he loves those wings at Magic City. I can't blame him for that. Well, well, wait, stop, stop, wait, wait, wait. Have you had the wings at Magic City? I have, I, I have, yes. Okay, all right. And, and, and if, if you have been living in L.A., and it's like, look, man, to me, it's like this. It's like leaving Chicago and then coming back and like, yo, let's go to Harold. <laughs> right, right, right. That's yeah. exactly what it is. Right. Now, now, here's the, thing, now, now, the difference between you and I going to Harold is that we don't have wings named after us. Right. Lou Williams <laughs> has wings named after him at Magic City. <laughs> you know what I, I'm saying? So, I, come on, man. I, yeah, it I is people making this look, man. He, now, he shouldn't have done it, but 
we're making this more out of what it is. And if you had the wings in Magic City, now they do have Harold's Chicken in Atlanta. They do yeah. have it. It's not yes. the same. I've tasted no, it. Same. It ain't the same. Mm-hmm. And then Gladys Knight has a, you know, Gladys Knight chicken and waffles. And, you know, I don't know if, you know, unless you bought the waffles, the, I, you know, I haven't done them separately of one another. So I can't tell you if the chicken at her place, which is really good stand alone like that. But I've had the Magic City wings. They fire. They're yeah. hellfire, but they're fire. Right. So I ain't mad at that. <laughs> so going, going to Magic City to get wings is equivalent to going to Harold's. And if somebody, you know, if, 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 if Derrick Rose came to Chicago and he's playing for somebody and he's in the bubble, and he goes to Harold Washington. Are we making the same kind of conversation? No, no, we're not. <laughs> Lastly, you know what I'm but you think you you think you can anonymously roll into Harold's and not be like noticed and not get on social media? Those days are over. I know, I know. You know, Lastly. Atlanta. Look, look, Magic City has been in the same pandemic that we have, so they're waiting for somebody big to come through instead of cats <laughs> like you and me walking through. You know what I'm saying? Once the doors got open. <laughs> They're like, oh, my God, somebody recognizable. It's Louis. He's coming to get some wings. Snap, 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 snap. Everybody's phone goes up. You know, come right, on, man. Right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, we know that's you, Lou. We know you. We know that's you in there, Mr. Six Man. We see you there. That's right. We know that's you. And he said, man, I just came to get some wings. And then it turns to a whole other problem. But you know what? That's, that, that's, a, that's a lesson learned. You know, and sometimes some people got to take a hit. And, and, you know, I'm glad it's him. You know, uh, they took a hit because he's a veteran and it's really not going to mess with him. And it's not going to mess with the Clippers because – you know, they're like, look, man, we're, we're ready for this, you know, once this thing starts. They're one of those 10 teams I think that will start. You see, you'll see them start getting serious about game six into this season, in, and then it's going to start locking in, and everybody's going to be in place, and we'll be laughing about this whole Lou Williams thing because it's going to be meaningless. But I'm glad it did happen to somebody like that because I think he understands what it's all about. And, you know, um, you know, once again, the media, in my mind, looking for stories and making stories out of, out, out of something. And, let, Jonathan, let's have, let's have a real – Two-second conversation right now. At the end of the day, somebody in his family that was very close to him, like close enough that he did that a lot of media called him his grandfather. Right. And they shared the last name. So there's a family connection there, passed away. So for us talking about wings, come on, let's put this thing in perspective. You know, it's like the the Allen Iverson thing about him talking about practice. We forgot the fact that his best friend had gotten killed the day before. That's what this is supposed to be about. With Lou Williams, this is really about him going home in a pandemic because his quote-unquote grandfather died. Somebody close enough to be his grandfather. So for us to make a big deal about him getting some wings, I don't give a damn where he went to get the wings. You know what I'm saying? Let's keep this in perspective of what he's going through. It's just funny. It's just funny to be caught up like that. That's what's funny about that. But Uh, but once again, it's a a lesson learned, and he's a good player to learn lessons from because he will make better decisions, but not everybody in the league can see what can happen to them. I got a minute left. I just want to – I need uh, 1,500 words on why it would have been great for Anthony Davis to uh, grow up uh, in the era of King and Simeon when they were on the top. He played for perspectives, and every time I see him, he's always writhing in pain, holding on to an arm, holding on to a limb. Dudes, stop being, stop being hurt. I need him to be upright and playing. I know he's a beast. Now he's got an eye issue. He might not even play tomorrow. I need right. hey, Back in the days of Sonny King and, and Bob Hambrick, man, he, he would have played through that eye injury. <laughs> that's that's I, you, what I want. You're exactly, you're exactly right, man. <laughs> man, look, man. Wait, wait, is that? Everybody talk about ten toes down, man. And if you play in the public league, man, you eight toes. You ain't you missing two toes and you still playing. <laughs> but here's the thing. But it's not just him, hood. It's not just him. Let's look at the recent. You know, I don't know what happened to Chicago. We used to breed the most thorough basketball players in the world. Shout out to Patrick Beverly. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? But 
You look at the Anthony Davises, you look at the Derrick Rose, you look at the Jabari Pogs, you look at the Jalil Okafor. Those cats that came from here, from this concrete, what's the deal, man? Like from a health situation, what is the deal? So it's not just AD. It's, it's, it's a whole, like, back end of a generation of players that came from here, and they all came from the public league. Like, what happened? They don't make them like Tony Allen anymore. Thank God. I was about to say shout-out to T-I-T-A, but, he's, you know, he's out of the league. But, no, seriously. <laughs> right. They don't make them like they used to. No. They don't. And maybe it's because of the whole AAU thing. You're playing inside. Because, you know, back in the day, man, if you, especially if you were playing in the public league, you still hooped outside. So thoughts there from Scoop Jackson from ESPN.com. Glad he was with us here on ESPN 1000, the ESPN Chicago app. We thank you for listening and being part of the program. Tyler Key on the other side of the glass. Baseball show Thursday at 6, followed by Chris Bleck and I giving you an NBA preview right here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood.